Welcome to the Marketing on Purpose podcast. I'm your host, Michael Fennick, partner at RDB. Today on the podcast, we are joined by Frederick Crosby. Frederick is the founder of Crosby MarketWise Consulting, where he advises business leaders on how to develop multi-channel acquisition plans in a rapidly changing environment. Check him out at crosby-consulting.com. Previously, Frederick was the Chief Revenue and Marketing Officer at Veeam and VP of Marketing and Business Development at Western Union. We are also joined today by RDB founder Mario Alonso Debu and international marketing executive Karen O'Brien. In our conversation, we discuss the new ecosystem of solopreneurship, the shifts we'll see in global marketing, and the skill sets you will need when working internationally or remotely, our thoughts around growth hacking, and so much more. Let's talk to Frederick. The topic for today is BDE marketing and growth leadership. Um, maybe we need to get some definitions around what that means. What is growth marketing? What does it look like today? What, what do you think it's going to look like in the next 12 months? Is it the new customer journey? Uh, growth marketing has a lot of different meanings out there. And every time I talk to you about growth, yeah, you could go about it in two different ways. There's a traditional element of growth marketing, which is fine-tune, fine-tune, fine-tune. Look at everything coming through the funnel. Uh, making sure that every journey that you get gets converted at the right element. It's a very technical aspect of the approach, which is important. The measurement tools that we have today are just outstanding. Just being able to watch any of the journeys from multiple devices to anything coming through. Uh, and then there's the element of, of the business element of marketing, which is have I cracked the nut to understand just what I have and how to best position it in the market so I could get this great uh, holistic. Uh, uh, spurt of growth coming from all my channels out there. Uh, so just want to kind of get the definitions and nomenclature in place. Uh, I'm more familiar with the latter. I've had to work a lot with B2B companies as they've been trying to figure out just what is it that they are going to become and how to get that message out there. Uh, to your point of, is it changing in the B2B world in the next 12 months? Uh, yeah. I mean, if it's ever going to change, this right. is kind of the time because there are pockets of, of opportunity still in all these crises, and there's a lot of landmines too. What are those landmines you think? Is it for the brand in the top of funnel or is it, is it just in the execution? Oh, there, there's two parts. Not everything's being bifurcated in two today. So <laughs> on one part, these are intensely emotional times. I mean, we, we started talking about the subjects for today's podcast uh, a week ago, a week and a half ago, it was all about COVID. Now we have the Black Lives Matter and, yeah. and George Floyd on everyone's mind. Everyone's on edge. Everyone's sensitive. So the landmines could be saying the wrong thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Drew Brees blows up by saying the right. wrong thing. Companies can blow up by saying the wrong thing, by being insensitive to the moment. Um, you really kind of have to watch how you're engaging with your customers to make sure that you don't step on something that's just going to really kind of put people off or worse yet, create a social storm around you. Right. The other landmines are just businesses. We were talking about fintech and, and financial services. That world's completely changed too. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, there was an article in McKinsey just a week ago uh, talking about the ballooning credit card debt that's about to happen. Mm -hmm. we're, we're all kind of feeling like maybe we're the worst of this is over because we're going through phase threes in some states mm -hmm. and counties and people are going out. I ate at a restaurant last week with a masked waiter and, and gloves and all that. But the debt's still coming. Like mm. the, the high unemployment rate, everything out there that is, is, is really kind of impacting the, the bottom of the, of the uh, financial food chain, which is consumers like us. There's going to be less of them, less than. And that just has ripple effects in all sorts of ways. So you know, just real quick, I think it's, it's germane to both consumers and businesses, right? So if you're running a business, you're going to be running on debt. Those are... Those are that kind of doubles things down, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Not only are the people that you're trying to sell to or the people you're selling to who sell to those people hitting some constraints, but you too. You're, because of the debt to run a company, you have some fixed assets that you're just not going to be able to shift fast enough and you're going to be looking at debt. Debt is going to be the key word for 2021. Yeah. 2020 was just about surviving. 2021 is going to be like, oh my God, look what we had to pay to get through that. 
Yeah, and you see it in grocery stores, you see it in retail, you know, what I used to pay $5 for, the items now eight, $9, and we don't have a choice, you know, we're we're focused or scattered on something else, but it's a reality. Yeah. It's especially hard, right, because we, in in Europe, but I kind of the edge on, at least in Austria and in some Central European countries, like, I can sense there's a relief of this is almost over, right? We almost made it. And I'm like, but yeah, but they're overseas. There are 50 million unemployed people. It's the biggest economy in the world, right? So every dollar that is not going to get spent in the US is a dollar that is missing in China, a dollar that is missing in Africa, and a dollar that is missing in Europe. So if General Motors doesn't sell their cars, they are not going to buy the parts in Austria, right? Or in Germany. So I, I'm, I'm completely with you. I think this will be the long tail of this is unprecedented, I think. Yeah, yeah, and how people survive through it. Those who have more agile business models, who have lower fixed cost base and higher variable bases, they'll be able to do some shifting around. But those that are highly leveraged, high capital type of products, you know, that's going to be hard. They're going to have to really clamp down for a while and not put big investments on. Sign it back into marketing. That's kind of where you kind of have to have your mind in terms of where you're positioning yourself and what you're trying to get to. people that have more more fluidity in their in their capital. Frederick, how is your business structured now? Are you an independent consultant by yourself? Do you have a small team? Do you work with independent experts? What's your model? It too is always changing. Right. <laughs> I went into this. Uh, so I launched my independent consulting on week one of, of the COVID shelter in place. Boom, everything fell apart. New choices to make, new places to go. So I just planted a flag and said, fine. Uh, my friend says, I put the shingle out on the front door, Frederick Crosby, ready for business. Uh, as I've gone on, I've really had a great, great time meeting all the, the world of solopreneurs out there. And we're, we're kind of like these amoebas that are joining together and like, hey, I've got a project. I need a little of you. Can you come in? I need, I need a little digital marketing support or I need a little sales ops help or I need a data scientist to finish this project. It's really become this great little ecosystem, which I think is going to be the key to, to our future success. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the great things that we have in today's economy that we didn't have, let's say, 10, 20 years ago. Um, we, we kind of uh, lament the loss of, of the pension and the long-term jobs, but this kind of dynamicism lets us adapt to the current situation much better. You know, mm-hmm. Yeah, the security blanket's gone, and that kind of sucks, but... And being able to suddenly see a situation, build a team, and go on it in, in seven days. Yes. Yeah. Globally, right? Globally, real time. It's insane. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm with you. I, I think it's the future of work, right? I think it's, yeah. it's how successful entities, no idea if it even will be companies, will be structured in the future. Um, especially in the consultancy space. Yeah. So I think you're in a good spot there. Um, what I've seen is interesting happen is that people are prioritizing or looking at their values, looking at the people that they want to work with, the things that they want to do. I think that's the positive thing that comes out of this. And like you said, Frederick, this is just an, it, it, there is opportunity here, um, especially in, in networking in ways that we didn't see even two years ago. Yeah. I was just going to say, I did what you're doing now, Frederick, through the last downturn through the the housing crisis. And I ended up doing that for eight years. I could barely take a week off. And I think, you know, there's cycles where there's more demand for that than ever. But I think there's always demand for someone like yourself with, you know, expert thought leadership in a space that can really help a company grow. So, um, so I think, I think you're going to do really well. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm already getting to a point where I've got one last proposal on the table, if that comes through, I'm going to need to start hiring. I've just already got yeah, yeah. do. So one question I had about uh, a company who would leverage someone like you. I'm assuming that what you do is come in and help solve a problem or provide a service to basically get something going. What are the areas that you're most focused on? Like, what does growth really mean? Uh, there are different aspects to it. So in one case, is it's, it's the graybeard effect, right? Where I built other businesses before. I built sales teams, marketing teams, partnership teams. And you will find a lot of very smart people with great concepts who just don't know the basics of how to do it. 
uh, one company. Don't know if I should name folks or not, so I'll just leave it off for now. Um, great, great uh, marketing tech that they've got out there. They've got a means to really uh, flip the affiliate marketing world around to something more performance-based. Um, but they've just been going ad hoc. They haven't been able to think about, hey, I need to grow year over year, quarter over quarter, then fight that fire, get that customer, fight the next fire. I bring that framework in. So that's something where, since I've done repeatedly, they just bring the experience in, I plug in, learn the business, adapt to their specific needs, and go. The other aspect is more people looking at the shifting landscape and wanting to know what to do, particularly in financial services where I've had so much experience in it, and help them navigate it, whether it's a risk company who has done very well in their world and now they need to go deeper into either helping insurance companies, payment companies, loan companies with their risk tools. Um, they have to quickly adapt to what's happening in the market, who's strong, who's not, and how does my technology fit in. So it's more of a, a marketing advising or market advising type of role. And there's several like that as well. So how do you see, given the discussion that we've had, um, how companies can either pivot? Do they need to be more mindful and strategic or more tactical? That is a very good question. So it really depends what kind of company you start off with doing. But let's look at financial services to start and kind of frame that up. Um, financial services in particular is where you really have to start with the strategic 12-month view. What's going to happen? This earlier discussion we just had about ballooning debt. Mm -hmm. How is that going to affect you, right? Um, as an insurance company, let's take it from that way, you're going to have to look at perhaps people having less premiums that they're going to be able to afford. Can you adapt the lower tier? Maybe you have to come up with a new entry point than you've had before in the past. Uh, in fact, I think that is one of my recommendations all the way around, having run pricing in the past. I think the new situation involves a lot of companies coming in with a new entry level, where you have to start with premium to kind of build loyalty and, and take a little bit of a risk, uh, or whether it's just a cheaper ad hoc, you know, buy now, day to day, week to week, some other kind of smaller type of, of nibble to keep people thinking it's not that much of expenditure. I know I have debt, but I can afford to do a little bit more of this. Uh, or there's a the big grab saying, hey, look, you've got money now. Why don't I give you, you know, three years for the price of one? Get your revenue now. Next year is not going to be high. So there's, there's that element of, of approach that you have to think about in insurance companies and, and other ones that have these kind of SaaS type of, of premium models. Um, on the other side, you look at financial services that touch money for, for loans. Poof. Okay. You've had it lucky for a long time. You got, you got to ride a 12-year bull market or a 10-year bull market. There was a risk in loans out there, right? So there's another strategic view where you're going to have to look in that mirror long and hard and go, do I have what it takes? Do I have to completely rethink my business model? Uh, and, and be careful of adverse election. Like people come to you that are really kind of at the a drowning person. And it's hard to save a drowning person. You're not supposed to go save a drowning person because they'll take you down. Companies just can't think its business is normal in that way. So that, that's a strategic element of it. On the tactical element of what you should be doing during this time, um, it is thinking through your future as something that might be as 60 to 70% productive as you want to be. Don't want to be doom and gloom. Hopefully there's something better than that. But being able to adjust your spend, um, just assume that your, your revenues are going to be reduced. I heard this is how some of the, the major VCs are giving guidance to their startups. Gives you the outline of what you need to kind of get to at some point to be flexible for survival. Going back to our conversation about having uh, flexibility is going to be the key for the next 18 months. When you, when you don't work with these companies, right? So, um, you almost come in as an educator, right? So you bring your you bring your processes. They have most of the skills that they need, but then you build you help them build the structure. You help them build the funnel. Um, you help them build the messaging. A lot of the, the conversations we have immediately struggle about the point, and we had that at Western Union a lot, right? How much do you put in bottom of funnel versus top of funnel and mid funnel, and and how do you how do you get results now, but at the same time build the brand? Did, did, what, what does your experience tell you? Like, how do you navigate those conversations and, and make people aware that there is no funnel if you just do the bottom, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think this is an important time to really kind of 
reestablish yourself on the top and middle of the funnel, in my opinion, mm -hmm. because of the great land shift that we just had. You have to be wise on when you do it. Like anyone trying to do a message on, on this week of all the disruption going across America, just wasting money. No one's going to pay attention to a message. But first of all, be wise on when you do it. But when you go back out there, it's time to kind of reestablish what you mean in today's world and how you're, you're helping folks. People don't want you to see a message like, I'm here to help you COVID people. But they do want to see you adapt to like, hey, we're, we're, we know you need to persevere. We know if this is going to be to be. We know you need to keep your business running. Um, we've adapted new tools for the new, uh, recognizing something new, new tools for the new economy. That's that kind of top and middle of the funnel pieces that you kind of start with your framework of messaging about who you are and how you fit in that landscape. And then do all the, the tactical things you need to do to have it reverberate in your social channels and, and such and kind of guide people in that funnel decision. Um, one thing that I really, going back to this company I've been working with and more and more aware of, is just how quickly content marketing has changed. We've all been talking content marketing for like four or five years, right? Yeah. But the, the fracturing has just exploded. It's, it's just in so many different places and every publication out there has recognized it as a means to make money in a world where advertising dollars are going down especially with the Amazon thing, even though they've cut a little bit of their affiliates that uh, Amazon thrown in there. Um, being really attuned to what the voice is in that market is going to be great for you as a business as well. And trying to get into the right place, whether you're using tools out there that do that for you or, or making relationships with the publishers that uh, might be closest to your market. That's another great way to kind of make that middle of the funnel convert for you in these times as well. There's going to be a lot more stuff being written about what to do in this world. Do you make a distinction, or what is your distinction between content marketing and product marketing? Because sometimes the two converge. So uh, in, in content marketing, I'm really talking about all the publications that are out there uh, that are writing about your service or product, uh, that are giving recommendations. Uh, that have industry stories that are happening in your area, anything that has links provided to it. Um, I know when we were at Western Union, uh, affiliates and links were just kind of this, this shotgun type of thing. Like, yeah, they're out there getting links, you're gonna get good links and bad links. Um, I think it's changed. So I think engaging with people in the content that's developed is one thing. And once you do, what do all those people want? They want you to kind of help them develop content to like, push in there as well. Um, I think it's hard, especially for the smaller B2Bs that I work with, to really have uh, a very loud voice producing your own content all the time. That's kind of a long battle. You got to do that for a while. You got to find your niche. It's still a great thing to go out there and do. I think content, you know, it's often referred to as content commerce. Content marketing switching over to the other side and, and leveraging the space that's already been developed and written on. It, I think becoming a growing and growing piece of any marketer strategy that you have to really be looking into. Mm -hmm. Would you would you say that's also similar to influencer marketing? You're you're able to reach an audience you wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Absolutely, and that's what the publishers do. I mean, separate from influencer marketing, because everyone's saying influencer marketing is taking a hit because they're kind of seen as a, the spoiled elite <laughs> of the of the net. No one should be spoiled at this given time in life. But all the pubs are really kind of tuned into a world already. I mean, they're, they're publishers. That's what, that's what they do. Yeah. Uh, so trying to, to ride that train and, and understand what they're talking about in writing and developing relationships there, I think, is, is very productive at this time. But, but that means, and, and you have a lot of experience, as you said, in building teams, right? That today, the talent that we're looking for is unbelievably diverse, right? So you're, yes, you're sales rep, but you also need to think about content. You need to understand the funnel. You need to be culturally relevant and the teams are getting smaller and smaller. So, so in your opinion, like as a successful marketer today, right? If you look at the young guns, what do you think it needs most in order to be successful? Wow. Wow. You know, I never really thought about it, but uh, your context is right. Everyone's got to be able to span so many different areas. Um, see, I'm going to say a biased opinion on this one because as uh, folks know me, I come from a very analytical ill. And uh, I was lucky enough to run into marketing with the analytical ill because marketing became very analytical. 
you have to be able to understand all the components of how everything ties together uh, or else any of your campaigns can run a KPI up, but it might not tie into the business. So I always like to have that as a foundation. Um, but then being able to really understand both the social and content voices of what's going on out there, I think is it's become kind of the critical battlegrounds for separating folks, one, some folks from another. And SEM is SEM. I mean, you got to do it right. SEO is SEO. You got to do it right. There's core things. It's a discipline. Uh, as, as I'm sure Karen can attest to, social and content just keeps evolving all the time. So as you say, if you're going to be hiring a small team and out there, having someone that could have both foot in those ponds of understanding the dynamic of, of the conversation off your platform uh, and being able to tie in very good structured analytical approaches to tie it into performance on your platform would be one super bundle that I would look for. I don't know. What do you guys think? I'd love to hear your opinions on this. I mean, I, I agree with you. And I think that, uh, you know, the, the sort of way that I've seen financial services companies, especially um, move into digital social realms and content has been that they want to control the narrative. And that is in itself antisocial. <laughs> and I think uh, you, you're always kind of, trying to put your product out there and you should embrace your customer, whether it's a B2B or a B2C customer um, to, to tell their story and to talk about your products and the way they use them, the way that they really do and the way they want to versus constantly being in this echo chamber, talking about yourself and putting a narrative out that you want the world to hear because we cannot control our own brand in those channels anymore. We can only uh, empower others. For me, it's interesting. I talked to uh, one of my first mentors from the advertising days uh, yesterday, and uh, the conversation steered towards a lot of companies, a lot of tech startups don't have the fundamentals, and there is a deep need for that. And I think a deep need for people who have experience, which is important that we're seeing. So, in building teams, or refining teams, making them more efficient, uh, I, I think is, is one thing. The, the second thing, I think in building teams, and we all know this, there are people that don't get the fundamentals or are just running and reacting. So I think there's a need, especially in this time, as we move forward with any client that we have or any team that we build, that they understand, those fun they understand the fundamentals and it's clearly communicated. So I, I think, you know, the we're just moving so fast in these last 10 years um, that, that a lot of times we, we lose sight of that. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, I think it's almost unfair what kind of talent you need to have in today's time. Yeah. Right. I think in reality, a marketer today is left and right brained at the same time. You, you can almost not tell, does he need to be an analyst first or creative first, but he definitely needs to be both. And uh, so you need to have an understanding of, um, you know, language, creative, uh, but at the same time, you almost need to work like a developer. As you said, right, with the funnel, it's very basic. It's building it up. It's looking at KPIs, understanding how your message um, involves which KPI. And then it's the new 360, right? I mean, yes, we talk content marketing, but in reality, it's just a different channel um, where you need to think about holistically. So that, that, I think, is, is already the challenge in terms of finding the right people who have that kind of structure. And then to your point, Michael, it's about, you know, how quick and how fast can you learn? It goes back to your point about flexibility and adaptability, right? So I need to be able to say, okay, maybe I haven't worked with Google Analytics before, but I did Facebook Business Manager. How much different can it be, right? So really understanding how you find your information, how you, um, how you identify best practices and going through tutorials to really quickly adapt to a new technology um, is I think the key that I look for at every young talent. If they come from a development background, even better, right? If they played a lot of PlayStation, even better. If they were Minecrafting, perfect. Don't tell my kid that, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> he didn't mean that. <laughs> yeah. So 
Seriously, there's esports scholarships now, and and very leading universities now have esports teams, um, similar to sports scholarships that they had in the past. You have no idea what those kids are doing. They built a plugin where they connected Google Earth data with geographic data and um, and like how the ground is composed. They took um, the entire map of the world and they recreated with a plugin a one-to-one wow. scale of the world in Minecraft with the right material oh, in the right place. Yeah. Okay. And now, okay. and now exactly. they're building now they're building the cities, right? As a crowd, more or less. So they go to Google Maps, they build the cities, everyone takes, you know, one building. And in the end they want to have like the entire world rebuilt in like Minecraft. I mean wow. how insane is that? And those are 14, 15 year old kids. They will be working in those that virtual world soon because right. we'll all be at home. So I would take it to the next level as a marketer. Let, let's look at what that looks like on Mars in 50 years. <laughs> well, they still will need the fundamentals, right? <laughs> yes. Good. Good. <laughs> the, funnel was, the funnel will be the same. I think those skills are, are going to be highly valued going forward, honestly. Like, I, I'm very proud of having a nephew who is an avid gamer who, uh, you know, is going into cybersecurity. Wow. You know, I think, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's really utilizing those skills. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of parents are kind of wondering, should I let my kids get into gaming? Is it a, is a good use of their time? It actually builds very real skills. Oh, yeah. We, when we define our values, the one that we, like, we put on top is build worlds. Right? It goes back to that 360 degree um, look at things. And I think in, in video games particularly, if you look, I mean, these are masterpieces, right? If you look at The Witcher or at um, other role-playing RPGs, those guys build entire ecosystems and universes. They think about, if you pick up a book in the shelf in like the fifth dungeon of the right side, there's a book with like 50 pages of story. So that immersion into a universe, I think, is so crucial. And I see it when when they get an insight at a client, there are people who can build the world around that insight. And then there are people who can just translate it into one sentence. And I think gaming really helps people understand how you build the world around something. Getting us back to growth discussion, I wanted to ask you, Frederick, what do you think of the term growth hacking? I don't like it. Uh, <laughs> please, please expand on that. Because <laughs> that's all you got to do. Just growth hack. There you go. It's always got to throw it in there. Like, I do it's a growth easy. hack. Like, well, growth hacking, I got to say, half the time you just run into it. All the failures you hear on growth hacking, you never hear about at all. And if you kind of look at the odds, it's almost like startups. You go into a startup, it's going to be a huge boom, right? You're going to get a lot of money. Yeah, growth hacking means to stay creative. Like going tying into our last conversation, you know, think about different things, try different things out. But it's not a strategy. It's just like saying hope is not a strategy. Growth yeah. hacking is not a strategy. Now that's something I think has really changed or accelerated in the last um, call it year, but really during these COVID times has really been more emphasized. Um, agile marketing, right? Uh, the death of the big, complicated, long campaign, just like the, the death of the big, complicated waterfall development world. Being able to just have a system where you have a lot of measurement, you can iterate uh, a little bit to that growth marketing element, but going into the softer subject of what's our subject matter, what are we going to try out there, what, um, what other kind of channel can we suddenly shift to, uh, I see that as, as core. Uh, again, because the landscape's changing, but also now you have the ability to do so many things. You have the, you have the talent that we we're just talking about being able to jump to so many different things. Um, I think that leads to growth hacking, but not by, by plan, but almost like by accident. What do you guys think? I think it's about discipline. I think you put your finger on it. I think maybe the, the name rubs you a little bit wrong, growth hacking. So yeah, I, I, but I think it, it is about that discipline at, this, at the same time wanting to be able to test and learn, which is a foundational element. Yeah. Yeah. Growth hacking has always had a love-hate kind of connotation. I love the implication that you can be agile, that you can try different things. I think also just the inference that you're focused on the things that matter, mm -hmm. right? Things that are going to move things. 
Um, but I, I also dislike the, uh, you know, the implication that it's going to solve all your problems and it's going to be just, you know. Or that it's chaotic. Just that just hacking to me brings up, okay, just go ahead and break stuff, which is, you know, Zuckerberg's uh, mantra. Um, but to me, that's, that doesn't hold any sort of discipline. It's a little bit anarchistic. What about you, Mario? I'm, I'm not too... Um, I think Europe was a bit delayed on the whole, like, so in Austria, we have a saying, if you don't like a trend, come to Austria because it comes 10 years later. Right? <laughs> um, so, so I, I, I'm not really familiar with growth happening and what, I, of course, you know, I heard about it and, and I heard people talking about it. Um, I have the assumption that it was very successful for a few, company, a few companies at the beginning who did the fundamentals right and had, you know, first mover advantage in the digital space. But now if you look at what growth hacking actually is, okay, it's marketing optimization. I think it's, you know, a, a clear funnel. Um, it's looking at KPIs. I think it's just a different name for the basics and that's over-promising what it is. You mean that's not hacking? That's not hacking. No, it's no. not. If, if you would say, okay, I take something else and I turn it into something that's marketing, that to me would be hacking, right? You repurpose something, but if it's just, you know, it's more programming, isn't it? It's just looking yeah. at KPIs and how you tweak them. But I'm, again, I'm surely not the expert to talk about this. That kind of is related to this around performance marketing. And we've been in a lot of companies where there are differing viewpoints around highly creative, highly performance driven, um, product-driven, customer-driven. There's all sorts of different perspectives. I am always in the middle of conversations with creatives and performance marketers. On one extreme, uh, the performance marketing is like scorched earth. It literally is like, you know, slamming people with ads that they don't want to see. Everybody hates advertising. On the other hand, it's what performs and it's what drives business. So I like to think that there's a middle ground <laughs> where exceptional creative helps support performance marketing. But I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Uh, yeah, so performance marketing, it's because it's so tied to last click uh, attribution, it's always just going to win out as clearly that amount of spend works. Um, I think you're right. I think it, it often uh, it gets almost too much credit because of the last click, it doesn't see how it ever, you know, because attribution is imperfect still, it's really hard to kind of see just how things are driven there. Um, I'm always one to kind of unpack performance marketing and try to understand it more from the context of how it's being implemented. Like getting back into which, which keywords are the things driving that and how did, uh, what are the trends on those keywords? Why is that going up or down? Why am I being successful there? Is there anything I could do to help that? That's kind of the other key element that you could do that gets more into other parts of the funnel to, to make sense of it, as opposed to saying, oh, okay, those keywords work great. Let me just keep pouring a lot more money into that space. Um, eventually, of course, it gets to the diminishing returns that everyone feels like, uh, you know, whoever is managing the performance marketing must be doing their job wrong because you can't get the numbers up higher by spending more in, in different AdWords strategies. Um, it, it really is just kind of a, a delayed reflection of everything else that you're doing out there. I feel like, um, you know, having come from the fashion industry at one point in my career, fashion is a response to culture and to society in general. And I feel like performance marketing, when it's at its best, is also a response. That you're responsive to the pulse of what's happening in the market, um, you know, in technology and in the industry that you're in. Um, so yeah, I, I actually find it fascinating and I'd like to, I'd like to see performance marketing get a better rep, um, and maybe be more integrated with the rest of marketing. Has to be, has to be. Hey, Frederick, can you talk to us about your time at Western Union, the team that you built? Uh, I recall that it was literally five to six people that started, uh, when Karen and I were there. Uh, and you were there, uh, there were hundreds, 300, 350. Talk to us about the work that you did there, because I think it's, it's, it, it was a massive accomplishment. It was my most enjoyable project ever. Uh, Western Union, of course, one of the oldest companies out there. So you want to think this is, 
is going to be the place where a lot of sudden change is going to happen. Uh, but there is a lot of, of goodwill and mandate to go out there and make things change in the beginning. So I came in there as the first local hire in the San Francisco Bay Area. Western Union established a new digital team. So uh, I always joked it was me, five guys from Denver, and a boss from Morocco. Khalid <laughs> 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 yeah. now, now the president. Yeah, good points. Uh, and it was, it was kind of funny in some ways because here was this very traditional company. All these other people were very traditional Western Union ilk and all that. But they did have the open mindset of us to go try something different. But I came in there and they kind of looked at me and said, do something digitally. <laughs> Just do that digital stuff that you do. Because I had my tenure at eBay and PayPal and VoIP startups and ERPs. Like there's all the stuff I brought in. Uh, and it was just a blank canvas, just like get the numbers from here to here. Um, here's some marketing budget and go out there and do it. Uh, and at first I thought, okay, let's just go ahead and you know do the fundamentals, do the basics. But here was a machine that was not built for it. Everything had to kind of be redone from scratch. The customer data was a mess. And I live by customer data. I like to see what my customers are doing in order to figure out any kind of coherent marketing strategy. The marketing targeting was was way off like they were doing satification marketing but i always called it where uh, western union it does serve a, a very entry-level part of our of our economy uh but it was always this helping hand kind of thing like oh you poor person we're going to be helping you which i um uh, being a, a son of an immigrant i think spits in the face of immigrant pride like they're <laughs> they're not in for the helping hand they mm. they're busting their butts they're doing great stuff. So the marketing was off and also wasn't modernized too. So there was a whole new segment that we had to get to. And then there was just the ground rules of how are we going to measure success that wasn't there. So there was a lot of moving parts that we had to go out there and do. So on one hand, I'm engaging with the CMO office trying to redefine the digital savvy marketer or, or sorry, market segment, what they represent, how big it is, the competitive settlement on them. The other end, I'm working with the analytics team going, let me get an idea of what's happening to our site with our customers. I got to be able to see this clearly. You know, what's my retention? What's everything else that's happening out there? And then it was, let's go make it happen. Let's go build this global team with the right message, using the right measurements and applying it through various aspects of the market to bring everything in. So uh, I had a higher team in the US, in Europe, Australia. Uh, and that's really where the magic started happening, where we, we retuned our, our performance marketing to make it something that we can measure and, and really get to a good ROI type of calculation on what we were doing. We pulled through uh, digital channels, uh, particularly through various display ads in, in Europe where it seemed to work better to kind of get our attention. And then Karen and Michael came in and brought this very strong social funnel that we're also able to wrap into things. Uh, and then with the last little sprinkle of tradition, kept tying it in with the community marketing that Western Union was famous for. A new message, various channels, all measurement. And then it was just a matter of proving the ROI and doubling down for more. And we did that for a period of three or four years. It went from a very stagnant uh, four-year business at the same value to something that completely, oh, here comes the dog, <laughs> completely quadrupled in a matter of three years. Uh, so as I said, we, we as a team, as, as a team, we had 60 marketers and analysts uh, just in the digital team. And then there's a whole social group that you guys had, which was strong and, and global as well. Um, we were able to get that growth going from a few hundred million up to almost half a billion in a matter of, of four years. So that was just a, a trend changing uh, from scratch thing that never really had both the ability to come in and plant the flag to begin things, get the resources that Western Union provided so easily and kind of leverage a brand, but also transform it at the same time. Fantastic. And then there's the whole other side of things about teaming with a product team and, and getting the, the site to go uh, more fluidly and, and try to understand what content was going to work on the site to engage with people differently. You know, what kind of, of uh, payment devices we needed. Like a whole world is different. I love global payments. Like it's yeah. a little bit there. I mean, you know, out in Austria, the, the preference for, for bank type of payments, the SOPORTS of the world, and uh, you got BPAY out there in Australia, and just trying to figure out what was going to work to make money go and speed versus cost. Then you add in 4,000 corridors of different FX exchange rates and how to optimize yeah. that. Big, fun project. 
I can imagine. Well, you also built the bureaucracy more. part off to the side. Right. Maybe not to the part there, right. but everything else is fun. Not to mention the massive retail footprint that also wanted to go digital, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's a whole other piece, but like just the sheer scale of it, of what you accomplished there. It's amazing. Phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it was a good time doing it, and I was surrounded by really great people, which was really the, the key of it. And I really want to emphasize that because, yeah, there was great business objectives held. Yeah, we did a lot. Um, I think culturally, the folks, mm. including the senior and everyone else that we had there, just some of the most fun I've had doing business. We just had a good time day to day. And I think that's, that's important. That's something I just try to keep with me in, in everything that I do going forward. Going back to being selective and sort of a conversation about what you do in your life and what you do with your career. Never lose faith of that. Nothing's worth being miserable day to day. Yeah. You, you said you're the son of an immigrant yourself. Yeah. Well, what, what's your background? So how, what's that story? If, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this, is, this is a good one. This will always be a whole different podcast, The Life of Crosby. <laughs> um, so my mom was from Atlaquipa, Peru, in the south. Oh, Beautiful Peru. city. A lot more people know about it now than they used to. It's also the gateway to the Coffee Canyon down there, but it lives in, it's just in um, second largest city in Peru. A couple million people now, like a little less than a million then. Uh, in this basin, surrounded by three volcanoes. Gorgeous. Um, architecture with, with uh, uh, colonial architecture built with white rock from all the um, condensed ash from those volcanoes over the, the millennia. Um, my dad is from Wyoming. And you know, Wyoming and Peru aren't really close to each other, right? So how did all this happen? He went into mining, uh, loved mining. Uh, Peru, of course, has a lot of natural copper out there. Uh, he worked for the Newmont Mining Comp Company as a uh, freelance contractor to go do testing and went into one of the richest copper deposit areas now they've discovered in Peru to do some testing. Lived in a cave outside in the desert with three other guys at a donkey. It's like a start of a bad joke, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then every break, they would work like for, for 10 days straight and then get four days off, uh, something along those lines. He would walk all night. He would leave at 9 p.m., walk all night through the moonlight uh, in order to get into Arequipa, like he'd, and he'd shower up the pension and go out. My wow. mom worked at the local British consulate. Um, she had several jobs. Mom was incredible. Um, both parents were incredible. Uh, she worked at the British consulate. They would have these gatherings for English-speaking folks. My mom spoke great English. Uh, and they met. And they, they fell in love. And they uh, continued to court each other for a year. And then when my dad got ready to propose to her, he was like after eight months, he was getting ready to propose to her. Um, my mom got a note at the British consulate saying, by the way, Joe Crosby's being transferred to Alaska. <laughs> uh, he didn't know it. She knew it before he did. Right? No way. I just said, sorry, Joe, I don't know if it's going to work. He was heartbroken, found out more of it later. They wrote each other every day for four more months, came back, got married, moved to America. And that was, that was the beginning of my, my half immigration story. But I'm very proud of both. So yeah, bless him. I, I love Beautiful. inside of oh, the food. <laughs> Uh, the, the Joe de Vois, they, they love life out there. And then my dad's side as well, you know, uh, while he's from Wyoming, it was a very Western background. I got some beautiful old snapshots from my family on that side of my grandfather being in this old West courthouse with a bunch of other folks in the old Western gear, you know, laying down the law in Northern Arizona. Pretty crazy. I've had a, a very rich background. <laughs> Yeah, I think you were a good fit for Western Union, right? I think I, I think that what what made the culture so special is that you had all these dual belongers, that you had basically customers for customers. Yeah, that, you know what? But that's really what got me upset about the marketing I saw out there because my mom would always see this too. Anytime there was anything on Peru, it was always like some colorful, mm -hmm. like, you know, dirty little uh, kid somewhere in the mountains feeding a llama. And she's like, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That's, that's there, but it's not all that's there. But that's all that ever people knew. People always said, like, oh, did you live with Yamas? Like, no, no, I, I built a business down there too, small shop. We, had, we did great. And that's really the I mean, immigration so broad and wide. It's something that when we had this background, we got to share at Western Union, we all realized. 
I think it's hard for folks who come from outside to, to really kind of appreciate and recognize that sometimes. Mm. No, it's a good point. I, I think just to, to hit the head on the, uh, or hit the nail on the head, everybody that worked in marketing had an international marketing story uh, to tell. They, they were not your, your classic, uh, you know, work for a PNG in the United States or work for a company um, and didn't have any international, international experience. And that was really fun. You know, the one thing that we haven't really talked about much, it might be a podcast all itself, is what's the future of globalization? Yes. I, I wanted to open that can, but then I was like, nah, we have nine minutes. This is not going to happen. <laughs> we should, yeah, we should do that. Time yeah. Because I, I, I live in an international business. I've always been yeah. element, either PayPal, eBay, Green, Western Union. Boy, there's so many different things going on right now. So yeah. many things. The immigration supply chain. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that we're uniquely suited, people who come from global organizations, to work from home? Because, yeah. I mean, we can go to an office, but then we're dialing in people from around the how world. many different countries and time zones, right? No, and I think we're also here in Austria, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we're, we're also adept at managing remote teams, which is a massive mm -hmm. skill set that's going to be in, in huge demand. But when you can literally um, employ people from a global talent pool like that now that don't have to show up at an office, yeah. I think global marketing is going to massively change. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, we should definitely do that. Because um, first of all, I think about what we discussed before, right? So, so you will need to find that marketing will have a hard time. The industry is going to really have a hard time. So you have to imagine that basically just if all the big agencies lay off 20 to 50% of their people, the global talent market is going to be swamped, right? So you can imagine all these copywriters, graphic designers, analysts, they're all going to be freelancers. So I think for, for companies, they will have to be able to pick the best talent in the world, right? Because it's, it's that, that's what you need to find. And at the same time, engage that that talent because i can tell you the people that i work with they want to be in vienna two weeks uh, but not four weeks a month right so they want to they want to stay in cairo for two weeks and then they want to come over to vienna and they want to fly over to manila and then they want to do this and all the time they're on the phone so it will be a completely different landscape and in order to get the best talent you need to adapt to that because they can choose where they want to go right? you just got to pick one time zone to stick to that yeah, the time zone thing is is a challenge. I'm going to stop that planet from spinning. Yeah, can someone explain to me why South Africa is on the same time zone? I mean, I get it. But South Africa and Austria is the same time zone? Yeah. It's, I think it's the, the Earth is flat. It's all alive. I've been having my hunches lately. <laughs> the lake seems flat. I have one, one question, I think, for Frederick, before we wrap this up. I wanted to understand the C-suite and where you think their heads are right now. I mean, from obviously there's so many perspectives. They're, they're having to be pulled in to think about so many things that were kind of running like clockwork in the past. Um, but from a growth standpoint, where do you think the C-suite's head is right now in financial services? You know, I, I, it's a really good question because they are, a lot of people I'm talking to just don't know. They're kind of stuck. They, I tell them about scenario planning. People should be doing scenario planning. Um, but it's, it's not easy to make a bet on anything right now because that could be your last dollars for a while. Um, so people are trying to put together, are they more conservative plans, Thomas? I don't, unless you're... The only ones who are doing real land grab right now is e-commerce in some payment company. That's still a hot area, particularly if you're doing e-commerce and, and more leisure and at-home stuff. Still a lot of fight you have to do. You have to be aggressive at this point. But everyone else is just going to be more tepid and trying to not spend crazy, doing the smart thing, right things, honing in, letting go of, of superfluous um, uh, initiatives that you might have had dabbling in out there. So for 90% of the world, maybe 80% of the world, it kind of is a little bit of a retreat. For 20% world, it is, we got to think through how to get more e-commerce going quickly and what we can do there. What I haven't seen is, um, 
a lot of really sophisticated models going on about what to do. I think there's still a lot of gut because of the, all the uncertainty of what people are thinking through it. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, if, we didn't, we didn't back, have a lot of time to react, right? I mean, this happened <laughs> overnight and then you are in survival and, and emergency mode and then it's really hard to be visionary and, and uh, creative if you're all the way down on the Maslow pyramid, right? There's a reason why uh, people need to be secure. Yeah, I mean, particularly here in America, I mean, I think in Europe, there might have been a few more weeks earlier, but always gets people is when I say, you know, this all started 10 weeks ago. And yeah. they're like, wow, it was just 10 weeks ago. Like, yeah. yeah, it marched. That yeah. was it. So um, I don't know if that answered your question or not, Karen. I, I haven't seen like a general trend, but I have seen just people cut off, cut off anything that's not core right now. And kind of think through how we can do our best to survive with our, our key business. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, you know, sort of at the board level and um, sort of at the for public companies, like how are they even managing to do accurate forecasting and and what are they actually, you know, promising? I, I see, you know, obviously the public facing statements. We see um, earnings reports coming out that are quite cautious. Um, and and downgrading what they're what they're going to be forecasting, but I I can't even imagine what some of the companies are actually you know the internal discussions are. Yeah, well, for the most part, I work with more smaller companies than the big guys. I'm sure if you're like my wife works at Visa, I'm sure they've got a very sophisticated a lot of scenarios mm -hmm. cash flow like that. Um, there's no bandwidth for failure in a lot of the companies I kind of work with. So there is a lot of just kind of slow down and hopefully things are going to work out okay. Um, there's thing they're kind of doing with two-year or three-year plans in that regard because they just they never did much of that to begin with, but now they definitely um, I do know from the investors I talk to that things aren't looking as bad as they thought. So maybe there is an encouraging sign out there. Um, they're still investing in fintechs. A lot of times they're looking into more established. It might be the time to complete the commitment with the new model, although I think that window is starting to come up again. Uh, but you've heard some news of some recent uh, big rounds going out to folks, um, which wasn't happening in March and April. It's starting, the wheels are starting to turn there again. So someone is getting more clarity, and, and with that, perhaps the rest of the people can start building their plans around that as well. This was lovely. I love this. This yeah, uh, it was a rough day, but this was really great. So good. good to have a good conversation. Next conversation we have. Um, not that I want to invite myself, but damn, that hot <laughs> looks nice. You know, it's, oh, it's good. It, some great insights, Frederick. Um, we we'll, we'll put another podcast together because I I think we got a lot of great ideas, um, and great conversation from today. So Maybe get you some traffic. <laughs> get you some traffic, Frederick. Yeah. That's Lily Crosby-Consulting.com. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Have a great day. Enjoy your view and uh, say hi to the dog. <laughs> All right. We'll do. See you guys. Thanks, guys. Great talking to you all. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you so much today for listening to RDB's podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, please consider leaving us a rating and a review. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram at rdb.agency and on Twitter at RBB Agency. Thank you once again for listening. We'll see you next time.